And then there's a prophetic statement that is mentioned. Actually, I begin to love him on a special love that's even deeper, a deeper love when he does extracts. And then I become the eyes in which he sees, the hands in which he moves, and the feet in which he walks. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Several weeks ago, we spoke with Amin Eshaker and Jesse Maroney with Link Outside, a Muslim prison ministry based in Anaheim, California, as part of a larger episode on the importance of charitable works and service in religious communities. We wanted to share with you more from their interview because we find their work and their stories inspiring. Here on In Good Faith. I'm speaking in good faith today with Amin Eshekar and Jesse Maroney, who are part of an organization called Link Outside, which works with folks who are in prisons and then also works with them as they come out. Just a little bit of background. Amin graduated from the University of California, Los Angeles, with a degree in history and political science. He worked nearly 10 years at a Fortune 500 utility company as a senior analyst. And while working, he has also pursued Islamic studies as well as Arabic at the California Islamic University and various other institutions. And he helped build Link Outside's one-of-a-kind inmate program and services using those skills. We'll talk more about that program in just a minute. Jesse Maroney accepted Islam while serving an eight-year sentence in prison and on release continued his Islamic studies and became a public speaker in Connecticut, where he's from. In his current role at Link Outside, he's responsible for promoting Islamic spiritual practices for inmates, and he conducts weekly classes at California State Prison in Los Angeles County, California Institute for Women, where he teaches Islamic studies and spirituality practices. Gentlemen, thank you. Amin, Jesse, thank you both for speaking with me today. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. No problem, Steve. Amin, will you tell me a brief overview of what Link Outside is? Link Outside, in some ways, is similar to other prison ministries. Uh, Obviously, we're coming from an Islamic perspective, but essentially, we are trying to be a one-stop shop for basically anybody who's impacted by the incarceration system and is seeking to further their Islamic foundation and understanding. So some of the things that we offer are in-person prison visits. And for those that we can't see in person, we have a large variety of services that reaches almost 40 states, impacting thousands of people across the country. And so those include mail correspondence, book donations, religious studies, correspondence courses. And for those who are re-entering society, we provide support to help during that transition time and doing it from an Islamic perspective, but we do have folks from different backgrounds as well. Did you grow up in a family that focused a lot on Islam? I think Islam definitely played a role. I wouldn't say it was most critical or, or important thing, but it was definitely there. It was definitely something that we understood was part of our identity. As a first-generation uh, immigrant family, coming to America, leaving everything behind, your primary focus is really just making it, so to speak. So Islam was something that was that was always there in the background, and it was just kind of like a point in everyone's life where you actually have to make that conscious decision 
you know, is this something that I want to actually take serious or not? And so that was kind of how it was for me. And, you know, growing up in the 90s as a first or second generation uh, Muslim American, um, both pre and post 9-11. So I've experienced both very difficult to kind of find your space in society and had issues with identifying. But one of the things that actually attracted me and, and I felt a sense of belonging was through the urban culture, specifically because in many parts of the country, Islam was actually growing amongst indigenous Americans, primarily people of color. And so it started to become even common to hear Islam being spoken about with uh, certain athletes or certain uh, musicians and, and artists. So that for me was something that I found inspiring, especially some of them who became Muslim in prison. And I discovered that Islam was practiced in prison. And I said, wow, like I was impressed because I felt their faith was stronger than mine as I developed. And I felt like, you know, God calls us at, at different times when the time is right, you know, and I felt like my calling came a few years later after that, when I started actually getting more serious about my faith. And then it just so happened that God brought somebody that actually is connected with Jesse in, in front of me, who introduced me to the whole idea of volunteering in prison, which I didn't know you can even do. And that's kind of how we started Link Outside. And, and I met Jesse through that. And it's kind of been an amazing ride since. What is it about Islam that motivates you to do this outreach? One of the biggest influences for me is, uh, first and foremost, the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the Prophet of Islam. And uh, one of the things that really stood out to me is that the people who were really on the forefront of the faith, who were, I guess you say, the torchbearers, you know, kind of like what the disciples were, were really some of the most downtrodden and economically deprived, and sometimes even folks who were discriminated against due to maybe their skin color or their lack of tribal affiliation. And those were actually the people who were on the forefront of bringing about the beauty of, of Islam. And in a modern-day example, the life of, of Malcolm X, or also known as Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz, his life too was very transformative. And after he was incarcerated, left um, prison to join the Nation of Islam, he also had a divine spiritual awakening when he was making the pilgrimage, which is called the Hajj in Mecca. And he saw that, in fact, people of all colors and all nationalities and all socioeconomic backgrounds were together worshiping God, were helping one another. If somebody was hungry, they'd make them food, you know, give them a place to sleep, which is something that woke him up. And he realized that uh, when he came back, first he left the nation of Islam, and then he, he started to actually promote orthodox or mainstream Islam. And he said something really profound. He said, what America needs is Islam, because Islam is something that can actually break down racism, that can actually break down uh, all the issues in society that was at the time. And even to today's life, we still see that still a lot of racial inequalities and socioeconomic inequalities in this country. So he was saying, if America just learned about Islam and knew about Islam and implemented its teachings, it can actually be the solution to a lot of society's problems. And you, and you also see some of the people who Malcolm X included himself and others that were following him were from these inner cities, very deprived areas of the country. And yet these were the people who became kind of the, the torchbearers. I like to look at that as an, as an example because I feel like there's a lot of value in investing in that segment of the population and they also, I believe, have the solution to a lot of society's problems. And so I feel like this program also, in, in addition to you know, promoting belief in God and, and helping people in their faith, I think it also, our faith is a faith of promoting social justice, a faith of solving 
issues of society, making society a just place. And so I feel like we're actually being able to do that as an extension of our work. And so for me, that's something that's very, very inspiring to try and kind of follow in those, in those big footsteps, you know, through, through our work, hopefully. Jesse, I wonder if I could ask you how you became attached to Islam. How did you first learn about it when you were serving time? Unfortunately, you know, I made a lot of sporadic and irrational decisions as a youth that landed me uh, to serve actually a 10-year prison sentence overall during the course of my early adulthood. Ultimately, what had happened is I started to kind of like come to this conclusion and look at myself when I was first initially incarcerated and start to see that I had some huge deficiencies with inside of myself and I really wanted to change. And so I started uh, taking Ohio University courses. And in the morning, I would see, you know, especially when you're in a prison environment, there's select individuals that you see that are really striving sometimes to really uh, change. You see this actual uh, great movement within them. And most of them get up early in the morning. Um, you'll see the, the early birds are the ones who are getting the worm. Um, they're either breeding, they're working out. And so that was kind of my time to go out there and do a little workout and then study. And ultimately what started to happen, I started to see that the Muslims were up at the same time. They were usually up in early in the morning, they were like reciting Arabic or they were going over something, something really deep, not just so superficial. So what intrigued me a lot ultimately was not only that just the simplicity of the belief system, but also too, that there was actually active action that had to go behind it. There was actually prayer that had to be done. There was a character uh, that needed to be embodied to not only see our belief, but also to, to really experience God through our morality to other human beings. And so I saw this and, you know, I articulate it well now, but that was just the feeling at that time. Not only that, I seen individuals who couldn't read at one point actually become interested in reading. Uh, I saw individuals who probably, you know, had murdered people that they wouldn't even want to harm a fly anymore. So I saw this drastic change. And not only that, they were able to like speak Arabic, some of them. And I was like, wow, how did this happen? And I said, hold on, something's really going on here. You call the organization Link Outside. And I wonder, could you just walk me through maybe an example of someone that you work with inside and then as they come out when they're released? Yeah, you know, I have a, a perfect example. Uh, we'll call him Abdul Wali. And so this is a person that we met during our prison visits. There's a local county jail here. So we visited him several times, maybe several months. And then he he ended up getting a six-year sentence. So now he's shipped upstate or to a facility that we can't you know, easily get to. So continue to write to us. And so we, over the course of the next six years, through our correspondence and classes and, and books that we were offering him, he definitely matured in him, not only in, in terms of his personality, but also in his spiritual or religious understanding. And so he just actually got released about maybe three months ago. And because his hometown is not too far from where we're based out of, so we've been keeping in, in touch. So when he got released, he called. So literally, I'm, I'm with my wife and, and daughter hanging out at the beach. So uh, on the way home, I <laughs> stop by, pick him up. You know, we, we, go, we go out. Um, it's just like that, you know. And, and so, but, but it's an investment that you're giving somebody. I mean, I'm wondering, you started to feel sort of a, a call to activism. At what point did you feel like, I actually have to have an organization. We can make this bigger. I have to credit that for most of my parents who voiced, or, were very organized and methodical, whatever they did. You know, even if it was creating a social group, my, my dad would be the first ones to like decide to create a preamble and <laughs> bylaws. <laughs> so um, I definitely had that in me. And then being around individuals in my company, and when you work for a big corporation that's 
one of the leaders in, in the utility industry and energy industry. You know, everything that they do is in terms of professionalism is a whole different level. And so, but how did that all start? It's the mutual friend that both Jesse and I met that brought us together. He started the program with some of his friends in, in college and most, and I don't know if this is true also in the Christian uh, ministry world, but in the Muslim prison ministry, most organizations are just kind of like a few volunteers visiting a local prison. That's kind of the extent of it. Most of them don't really have a name or don't, they're doing amazing work, but the impact is, is quite limited to whatever prison they're visiting. So that was kind of how ours started. And he just actually had gotten married and his soon-to-be wife was living in Connecticut at the time. So he says, look, I'm going to be leaving California. And he's he's the person who was leading this initiative. So I just said, hey, what's going to happen to the program? Because I, I was enjoying it, you know, finding the, the value, not only in what we're offering, but even personally, just the experiences leaves so much with you. So I just offered, hey, let me just continue it. And so so I asked him, hey, so where are your instructions? <laughs> where are, you, are your procedures? And he's like, I don't have any. So I, I literally just grabbed a laptop and, you know, an hour, I just tried to flesh it all out. It wasn't really like a plan, like, okay, I'm going to create this organization. We're going to get our 501c3. We're going to get a website. We're going to call it this. I was just thinking, how can I continue the program? And it's kind of like an organic process. So so then I got the prison visits, visits going. And then we realized that there was a lot of mail that, that a lot of Islamic centers were getting from people in prison, but nobody was really responding to them. So we just said, hey, you know what? Let's add that to our plate too. And then it got to the point where there were so many things that we were adding to the plate that I felt to really be effective, you know, you have to start taking it to the next level. And so I had, I had a lot of great mentors, both within our community and in my professional world that kind of gave me those ideas. And so, you know, we have a system now, and, and actually we we're just talking about it yesterday. We just put together for the first time an operations manual that if, you know, God forbid something happens to either one of us, we now actually have everything lined out that someone could just come in and literally continue to keep the engine running. So I like to think of it like, I wouldn't want this to go down with me if I decide to retire or whatever, something happens to us one day. That's really the, the big motivation is let's just find a way to keep this going and make it more impactful. We're speaking with Amin Eshaker and Jesse Maroney, administrators at Link Outside, a prison ministry based in Anaheim, California. One of the organization's outreach programs involves a course for inmates called Secrets of Divine Love, which draws on the Quran and other sources to help prisoners reflect on their life and relationship with God. Amin shared with us the thoughts of one student in this course, Norma Juarez Taha. Let's listen. I always pray and ask Allah to keep my children and family safe, especially in these times of sickness and hardship. My daughter and sons found themselves lost after my incarceration. Depression fell over their lives because I wasn't there. My husband felt angry and nothing else mattered but his feelings and situation. In my cell loneliness and quiet, I connected to Allah. May he be praised and exalted. No control was in my hands. No decision or opinion. Everything was in his hands. And the third day... That's what I heard from my heart. Leave it to Allah. Don't hate. Don't be angry. Don't speak ill about anyone just because you're angry now. I knew then that Allah had always been there. The three nights before my arrest, I cried and begged for his help. I was so into prayer. 
I remember I had no appreciation from anyone for anything that I had done or helped. I asked him to save me and not to grow angry. There I was, three days later, in a cell, by myself, back to him. My eternal peace was unspeakable. My lawyers could not understand why I wasn't angry or why I didn't collaborate through lies to save myself. Allah was watching me. He had answered my prayers, setting me by myself so no one would call me 24 hours a day, so no one would hurt me anymore. I got the message through tranquility and peace. My innocence was for Allah to bring later, but for the moment my endurance was to be tested. Allah always hears my prayers, my peace and dreams tell me. My children and my family were changing and still are, and they're in a better stage, just like I asked Allah to do for me while I was away in this journey of knowledge. That was Chris Wing Peterson reading from Norma Juarez Taha's short remembrance of her experience finding peace from God. Now we return to our interview with Amin Ashaker and Jesse Maroney from Link Outside. You know, I read a little bit in the Los Angeles Times about this program, and one of the the folks who was part of this says, we wanted someone to hear us to recognize our humanity and our spirituality, which it sounds like you're doing, and that idea that they're part of a community when they are released. And Jesse, I wonder if I could ask you, how was that transition for you from being inside to coming outside? It was kind of tough. Um, One of the reasons why was because Number one, I accepted Islam when I was in prison, so I don't know what actually, you know, Islam outside of a prison uh, facility kind of looks like. You know, this is my first experience to a mosque, right. uh, first time with, you know, individuals overall who were immigrants that I had never seen before because my bubble of life was basically the African-American community and white community. That was pretty much it. And maybe a sprinkle of Dominican and Cuban that were in my area. But I never had interacted with Pakistanis, um, Bangladeshis, Arabs, ne- never have interacted with them. It was um, it was it was a, a quite, I would say, frightening at some level, you know, and um, also, too, I came with a stigma on me because I had a big um, bracelet around my ankle that monitored me. Mm. And so that was pretty, you know, apparent when I walked into the mosque and many questions were actually asked. And then also, too, there was this thing, okay, this guy that came from prison and now he's converted to Islam. And um, it was a very interesting thing because, you know, I was invited to some people's houses a couple of times and, you know, something had come up missing within the house. And then later they found it, but they first blamed me. But also, too, overall, what I would say is, is that after people established that it wasn't like a direct threat and they kind of got over some of the stigma that's usually put on people who were previously incarcerated. It was actually a lot of love and comfort. And then what started to actually happen, they had seen that I had actually sat down and studied something um, that I actually knew a little bit more than what they actually initially thought. And then after a while, especially in the Connecticut area first, I started to actually teach the children about Islam in the community. And they actually felt safe with me actually teaching their children because I actually, I could understand certain things, you know, what their kids are going through. Some of them are smoking marijuana now. Some of them are thinking about girls or boys and things of this nature. And I kind of know the culture to kind of give them some understanding what's happening when they begin to actually interact in these different, you know, in, uh, in school. So it was a very interesting uh, situation. It was like, I became like part of this melting pot of like, of these different cultures and everything and getting to understand everything and eating different types of foods and different types of attitudes, you know, because 
certain cultures, they talk very loud, some don't. And I, took, <laughs> I had to, it was, it was this very interesting process of kind of just gelling with the community and bringing my own unique value to the community that they hadn't seen before. I'm putting myself in your place thinking, this would be quite a moment to go back to prison to teach or to connect with people. I don't know. How did that feel? Tell me the story of when you first went back to do that. So the first time that I went back to prison was actually in Connecticut. I had gotten asked by a local individual. They said, could somebody come and actually give the the Eid or this special day in Islam celebration day speech and prayer? You know, I was very excited, right? Because this is actually something that I had asked for when I was inside prison praying to God. Mm-hmm. I was asking basically, can I be a service? Can I help out? Can I come back into these places and really show the light of Islam? And so it was very exciting. But then also, too, there was a lot of trauma that still had been buried within me. So I start hearing the chains. I start hearing the doors clack. I start hearing the guards yell. I start seeing they all wear one color and it looks all kind of just like this, you know, like like people are just humanly warehoused. So you start feeling this again. You start feeling some of these pressures and these experiences and these negative experiences that you had. And you have to kind of like begin to override them. But it was almost like just walking back, like I was actually nervous about going back to prison. And so it was it was a lot. And I could really feel and empathize with the guys. Uh, But then I also, too, had to start making this clear distinction that, you know, I am not incarcerated anymore as I began to actually do this, do this a little bit more. And so that was a it was a wake up call. It was it was a huge wake up call for me. But as you've done that, it seems like that would be very satisfying that you can help people connect to a community and to learn. Uh, many times when you're incarcerated, a lot of times you feel like you're left on this own island, especially when it comes to the Muslim community. We're already a minority in this country. Anyways, I was on a, a prison visit where an individual, he did almost about 30 years in prison. And he mentioned that through his 30 years of incarceration, there was only just a handful of Muslims that actually came to uh, reach out. And that this was like a huge breath of fresh air, especially when not, not only did I bring myself, but I brought other community members, I brought women so that they could get introduced to these different people to understand what they're kind of getting into once they reach into society. It's been such an amazing gift from God to be able to be that bridge, but there's only so much that you possibly can do. Um, And so you try to give them the best tools so that they can ultimately, um, you know, try to take on the challenge themselves. And that's kind of like where that, that's the most hurtful part that I can't help them through the whole process all the time, but ultimately not helping them through the whole process is going to actually make them stronger. I mean, I was going to ask, this is really trying to see people who are in prison as human beings, as people. And my limited times that I've been to different events at prisons, both for religious services or otherwise to visit, the first thing I noticed is, oh, we are all just one choice away from being in this same situation. Did you have to learn to see inmates as people? Anytime you're going into a prison environment, there's always going to be a learning process involved. Part of it was being in tune with a lot of the issues going on in the, in the urban community. A lot of that kind of helped break the ice, but you're still going to have a lot of the stereotypes from popular culture and media of what prison life is like. You know, you have this image of a, of a very violent place where there's a lot of tension in the air and conflict arising. And you find out it's quite the opposite in that, in fact, sometimes I feel more tranquility there than I do on the outside. So the individuals you see there, their character, the, the prophetic manifestation of, of the beliefs 
that they're practicing and the brotherhood, a sisterhood they have between each other, just how they carry themselves. I've rarely, rarely seen that type of character on the outside world. And I've, I've traveled to many different countries, been on pilgrimages, and I've never seen it to that extent. So there is something absolutely special. And it's one of those things you just got to go and see it to find out. So how has this changed you? I really kind of had a big perspective change. And I think a lot of ministry within our faith group is, is you know, very heavily emphasizing on proselytization, right? You know, obviously, you know, spreading the, the message of, of God's word and, and revelation is something noble. But if that becomes a very one-dimensional uh, approach, and I, I think you really, you know, you can be doing more <laughs> damage than you can. Good. And, and so what I learned over time is that what we're really there is, is just showing that the community hasn't forgotten them. And you start realizing on a deeper level, okay, well, this person is dealing with some kind of trauma. This person is dealing with past relationships that have, you know, impacted their life. And maybe they have some kind of hardship waiting for them at home. You start actually looking at it more like on a human to human basis. And you start learning things about yourself. I'm looking at it in a very one dimensional way. I need to start learning more about the background, the, the past histories, trauma, the, the different neighborhoods that these individuals are, are coming from to really maximize the, the amount of good that you have. And, and again, you know, a lot of the stuff you can't read in a book. You can't go and watch a YouTube video and, and figure this <laughs> out. You really just have to go in and maybe spend years of, you know, talking to people and, and finding out what works, what doesn't work. A lot of times I think what, kind of like what Amin mentioned, you know, that you're actually going in there when you come into a one-dimensional mindset that you're helping. Um, you're kind of blocking off that you're actually going to learn from people who have kind of experienced some of the deepest uh, levels of their own of human existence, meaning like themselves. And that not only with inside of themselves did they find something really amazing many, many times because they have to deal with continuous, you know, fighting of depression or certain lowly thoughts. And they begin to develop this beautiful resistance and this optimism that sometimes until somebody actually brings it says, wow, look at really how beautiful you are and look how much power you have. They don't really see it. I guess Amin probably can attest to this, that these people have tremendously changed our lives. Even me and I was previously incarcerated just by continuous interaction with them um, has not only enriched our understanding of our belief, but has made our belief actually experiential, meaning that we have now we have experiential knowledge of it. It's not just theoretical. And this is maybe a personal question, but do you feel God's approval in what you do? Do you sense that? So, you know, Jesse and I always talk about that. And it's one of those things where you may not be able to know 100%, but there's certain signs that God sends sometimes to show you something or teach you a lesson. And we started off as this kind of a ragtag mom and pop operation. You know, God puts so many people together in our lives, including meeting Jesse, meeting people in, in different positions across the country, philanthropists, different contracts and grants. And we just we're just thinking about it like, wow, like, look how God has put all of these things together for us, you know, and, and things that we couldn't even ourselves, if we wanted to plan this out, we have no way of being able to, to do that. So for me, that, that that's a, a, something that I feel assured about that well, there's something going on here. There's something special going on here. And, and, and I just hope that we could continue to be sincere in our work and we can continue to get God's approval. That's our time for today. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. 
In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.